Hi, this is Smriti Kirmanandan, your host for Health Forward Podcast. One of the most important things you can do for yourself is to take care of your health. Your road to discovering an all-inclusive, empathetic, and innovative healthcare ecosystem starts right now. The COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in over 4.3 million confirmed cases and over 300,000 deaths globally. It has also sparked fears of an impending economic crisis and recession. Social distancing, self-isolation, and travel restrictions have led to reduced workforce. 1.38 billion school learners have been impacted. 2.9 million Americans have applied for unemployment. 60% of Americans have reported experiencing loneliness. Are we ready for the future of pandemics? Joins me today, Dr. Atul Nakasi, a primary care physician serving the LA County and serves as a senior advisor to the Office of the U.S. Surgeon General. Dr. Atul Nakasi, thank you so much for your time. Welcome to Health Forward. Thank you so much, Simi. A great pleasure to be here with Health Forward. Excited to talk today. Awesome. So we'll dive right in. What has inspired you to be in the field of public health? It's a great question, Simi. I'd really say it comes from the stories and the struggles of my patients. You know, I see patients here in our clinic and as a primary care doctor in South Los Angeles. And uh, Simi, one out of five of my patients on their intake forms that they fill out say they worry about running out of food at the end of the week. One out of five. And 85% of our patients here in our community that come to see me as, as a primary care doctor make under $18,000 and live on that. 85% of our patients in Los Angeles today in 2022. And I have homeless patients also that, that have been on a wait list for more than a year now, still living shelter to shelter, street to street. And I think when you look at all of that, when you ask me like what inspires me, it's that, right? It's the stories and the struggles and realizing that you know, as a clinician, I do my best every single day to help the patient in front of me, but that we have larger system level levers that we need to be pulling and uh, shifting and changing and impacting to really address the root cause so much more upstream. And that's really what inspired me towards the, the field of public health is that if we can affect those drivers upstream, whether it's food insecurity, housing insecurity, uh, wealth and income insecurity, and, and with the wealth gaps we're seeing, uh, that we can truly make a larger impact and difference. Yeah, I love that you're on the front row addressing the root problems in our healthcare system than just the symptoms of the issue. So given the pandemic, the issues within our healthcare system has been magnified. As a physician, what has your experience been? It's been tough. It's been extremely, extremely tough. I'll give you just a couple examples from over these last few years. You know, I live uh, previously when I was training in West Los Angeles uh, over at UCLA on the other side of town. The zip code there, Simi, is 90095. And I discovered when I took my job here, my first job uh, coming out of training in South Los Angeles in the community of Watts Compton, the zip code is actually the same five numbers, Mm -hmm. but with one difference. Instead of 90095, I discovered when I started working here, the zip code here is 90059 instead of 95. That one reversal of five for nine, nine for five, that one reversal is 10 years of a life expectancy between the communities of South Los Angeles and West Los Angeles, 10 years. 
And I think that what the pandemic did is it, it made that reality raw and, and, and exposed how tremendous the inequities are between our communities because we had a, a pandemic, we had a, a disaster, public health disaster, right, crisis. And so it exposed the realities that were there pre-existing well, well before this pandemic, but brought it to forefront. And, and the other thing I'd say on that, like this translated to real people's lives at the end of the day, the, for every one patient who was dying from COVID in West Los Angeles, I mean, five, five of my patients were dying in South Los Angeles from COVID-19. That's the death rate. It's a five-fold increased death rate in South Los Angeles from, from COVID-19. So imagine that. Imagine a community that has five times as much stressors, five times as many stressors on the hospital, on the nurses, on the doctors, on the ventilators, on the PPE, right? Like you can, you can imagine how if you're having five-fold the stressors, you're going to have a very dire situation. And we saw that. We we saw that our oxygen pipes broke in one of our hospitals uh, because there were so many patients who needed oxygen and the hospital infrastructure wasn't prepared for that. We saw that we were very close. Thank God. Thank God we didn't, but so close to running out of PPE um, in those early months uh, and in, in dire need to think about our resources. We were so, the, the hospital capacity was so overexceeded, Simi, that here at MLK Hospital, we had to house our patients with COVID in the chapel, in the chapel of wow. the hospital, right? So that's what we saw. That's what was magnified on the health system when you asked that question and what we experienced. So luckily, you know, we are at a different stage of the pandemic now, luckily, we have really effective vaccines to, to keep severe disease at bay. And we have treatments now like Paxlovid. So we're in a different stage. I do want to emphasize that. And we're in a much, much more hopeful stage. But what we've been through, I think, really informs where we need to go moving forward. Let's expand a little bit more on the zip code comment you made. You know, a zip code shouldn't determine someone's access to health or basic access to healthcare systems and the services they receive. So how do you believe we within the LA County are addressing by zip code? Is there a specific strategies the county is deploying at this moment? Definitely, Simi, that is one of our top, top most priorities. And honestly, has been, you know, if you look at the history of public health, it has been to serve those who are chronically underserved, under-resourced. Um, and, and, and so that really has actually been the mission of the public health department of this county for years, years well before this. And it became ever more uh, forefront, as I mentioned, with the pandemic. So for example, vaccinations, there was very specific vaccination strategy to make sure we were meeting people where they lived, where they worked, where they played, where, right, where they, uh, their families were. And so that was an active strategy with mobile clinics, meeting people in communities like South Los Angeles, even even here at Charles Drew University, where I'm an assistant professor at, we had one of my good colleagues, Dr. Rogers, he had a mobile vaccine clinic working with the 23 churches in South Los Angeles uh, to make sure we're prioritizing those communities, we're caring about those communities, we're giving them education and access to a life-saving vaccine um, as a top priority. So it has very much informed our practice of public health, well, even before actually the pandemic, but certainly also during the pandemic to make sure we start closing those gaps. 42% of Americans are vaccine resistant. This is a shot as a campaign kickstarted by you to elevate physician voices to advocate for vaccinations. Share with us this whole journey of this is a shot. 
Yeah, thank you, Simi. You know, it was a small group of us physicians, nurses, pharmacists, uh, initially started here in California that came together because of our common feelings and beliefs that we were hearing from our patients. And so again, it was all sparked out of the patient needs we were experiencing as practicing frontline health professionals. And so I'm going to give you a few very clear examples. I remember very, you know, early in the pandemic before uh, there was even a vaccine available. So I, mean, I had a young man in, in South Los Angeles and he just, he just asked me and he, uh, it was a phone, a telephone visit, you know, early in the pandemic. And he just asked me, he said, Dr. Nakasi, and he asked this so innocently, so honestly, just so straightforward. He's just like, Dr. Nakasi, I am so confused. I am so confused. I don't know what to believe anymore. And I could just tell he was, you know, he was anguishing over how hard it was to tell what was right to do. And it really gave the impetus to realizing that access to accurate information is a vital public good. And that access has inequities in it already who has access to a doctor, who has access to timely care, who has access to a health system, who has access to insurance, right? And all those things lead to whether you have access to accurate, reliable information. And that was the realization is that we have so many patients who were struggling because there was so much misinformation uh, that it was overpowering even the the truth about this pandemic, about the vaccines, about, about the virus. And, and it became ever more evident. The last thing I'll say on that, it became not only evident from our patient struggles and stories of trying to discern what was, what was right and, and asking us as their primary care doctors, as their primary care practitioners to help guide them um, through that misinformation. But also the research supported this too. Simi, if you look at, you know, a typical patient, they may see me in my clinic one time every three, four months. That you know, 15 minutes, one time every three months or four months, that's about an hour in a year. You know, that's about 60 minutes in one year, they have access to a doctor with credible, uh, you know, and accurate information and expertise for their health. One hour a year, the average American every day spends two and a half hours a day on social media. Wow. Two and a half hours a day on social media. So so compare that, right? Like we could do the math to me, right? Two and a half hours a day, every day on social media, accessing information versus one hour a year to access to your doctor. I mean, it's not even comparable. So that that's what we're up against. So I share that as background. Like that's what inspired us. It's like, we have a responsibility to break through the noise with accurate information because it will save people's lives. And, and that inspired the This Is Our Shot campaign with more than 25,000 healthcare heroes across the country post digital accurate information to combat misinformation with more than 1.3 billion impressions. We're the nation's largest vaccine campaign by healthcare workers um, in terms of combating misinformation and providing accurate information. So largest digital campaign in the country by healthcare workers. So we were very excited about the movement we were able to create, but it was all rooted ultimately in that patient struggle that we as frontline physicians experienced with them. I love your passion. I love that you use social media as a great tool to really educate others on how to be responsible for the individual health and also understand accountability for public health. Dr. Nakasi, I think we are in the shot series, if I could say that. You've had two vaccinations followed by a booster shot, maybe two. How many more shots do you believe we need? This is such a good question because I get this question a lot, even in my clinic, you know, doc, you know, do I need my next shot? Doc, do I need the booster? Doc, should I get my third shot, my fourth shot? Like, where are we? Am I going to always need shots? Is it, and this is such a good question. I'm happy we're really highlighting it. 
so I would say, you know, right now, just to let everyone know about the guidelines. So right now, anyone above the age of five uh, should uh, move forward with their vaccination and their booster, everyone above the age of five. Those above 50 should have a second booster or a fourth overall dose because that's a particularly vulnerable group. So, uh, so from six, you know, from age five and above, you should get your booster from age six months and above, you can get your first two doses from age five and above, you can get your first three doses and then age 50 and above your, your four doses, your full four doses. So that's, that's how I think about it right now with what's evidence-based and what, what works in terms of long-term horizon. I like to think about like vaccines and boosters as a normal part of life. It's a normal part of, of maintenance and upkeep of your body. You know, we all, there are things we care about in our lives, whether it's, you know, our vehicles, our homes, our computers, we, everything requires a certain level of maintenance, right? You can think about the human body that way. It requires boosting periodically to keep its defenses maintained, right? Like it's, a, it's another system. We got to maintain it. It's a biologic system and it's probably our most valuable system by far, right? Out of any system we take care of. And so, for example, I'll just share this to me because this is something that, you know, we observe here in the medical world that I think is really helpful to know. The typical person receives 13, 13 mm-hmm. tetanus doses throughout their life. Six of these are before the age of 12, even six of them. And then there's an additional booster every decade, every single decade for the rest of your life. I just had my 94 year old patient come into the clinic not too long ago. I got her her next tetanus dose. Her last one was when she was 84. She's 94 years old and I kept her systems going. I kept her defenses up. I kept her immune system ready to go against tetanus. And we boosted her at 94 years old and she's doing amazing. She's doing incredible. She's healthy, amazingly. I wish I was in her state of health when I get to that point. Um, and so I say that to say that that strategy helped lead to a 99% decrease in tetanus deaths in the U.S. since 1947. 99% decrease in deaths because of that strategy. In fact, today, Simi, you know what? We just average 30 tetanus cases, not even deaths, cases a year because boosters are a normal part of vaccination and boosters are a normal part of life. And so that's really, I think, an important concept for all of us to think about. It's a normal part of our our bodily upkeep to keep our defenses going because bacteria and viruses are not going away. They are they were here before the human species, and they will certainly be here more more than likely well after the human species. And so it is our kind of duty to protect ourselves, our loved ones, our bodies um, through vaccines and boosters, lifelong. I'm with you, Dr. Nakasi, but I'll have to ask, you know, compared to all the other vaccinations, for some reason, it it appears to be that people have much more fear when it came to the COVID-19 vaccinations. Why do you believe that has been the case? Yeah, it's a great question to me. You know, I would say it's natural to have fears, to be honest. I'll share my experience. Even I remember being notified by my clinic very early on when the healthcare workers were first eligible for the vaccine. And I'll be honest, I even had questions in my mind. I'm like, you know, did, you know, is this going to be safe? Is, should I move forward? I'm going to be one of the first people to get this. Like I need this protection. I'm seeing patients with COVID. I was going in the hospital, taking care of patients. 
you know, but, you know, it just isn't, it's something new, this vaccine that's, that is, that has now come about and it's so exciting, but there's normal anxiousness. Like even I, I'm sharing, like I'm a doctor on the front line, like even I had questions and, and concerns about the vaccine. So I think it's actually very natural when something new comes along to have questions. I think that's, you know, that's healthy in many ways. I think where we faced more challenges. And I'd say most people, they, they had natural healthy questions, which was fantastic. And I really helped uh, our patients, uh, you know, become empowered with the information they needed to make those choices for themselves and families. And I'd say nine out of 10 of our patients, semi anecdotally, when empowered with the right information, with access to ACK information, they make the right decision they make the right decision for themselves and their family. I think where we got into challenges with was the misinformation uh, escalation and the, the tsunami of misinformation, because then that made it so much more harder to really shift through what was right and what was wrong. And it sowed a, a lot of confusion. And we're still struggling with that today, Simi. We are still struggling that with so many people who still have not you know, made that decision to move forward. So I would, I, I would say that when people are given the right information more times than not, they actually make the best decision for themselves. Um, and I've seen that, you know, here in my clinic, when we take the time to really talk about the vaccine, explain it, educate, provide accurate information. So I'm hopeful about that. I think, is it an effort that is not easy? It's one conversation at a time, one person at a time, one vaccine at a time almost, right? But uh, we've seen that make a difference. And so I'm hopeful if we continue that, we'll be able to close those gaps, but those gaps are real. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that topic's been politicized. There's lots of misinformation. It's, it's been a source of division. Um, but I'm hopeful we can overcome that. And through time, we close those gaps. It's great to see physicians being vulnerable and also normalizing fear. So thank you for that, Dr. Nakasi. The pandemic, obviously, is a clear public health concern. This has had a huge impact on our mental health, economic health, and our relationships. Where are we now and what could we be doing better? It's a great question. I think you're so right. It's affected almost every aspect of life for for most of us, you know, by far, almost all of us really, right? And so I think we we have to come together as a society. I think, you know, one thing is realizing now we have all the right tools for COVID to really prevent. I mean, we really have turned it into a preventable disease. We, we turned it into a preventable death, right? Like we can, you know, protect yourself from severe outcomes and death. So I think that's number one is, you know, one thing is we have to come to the consensus that look, we can live lives and do the things we love, be with the people we love, do the things we miss. If we stay up to date on our vaccines, our boosters and access to treatments, and, and we take the right public health measures, we can learn to live this and live in a, in a way that we can continue to have uh, meet our life needs and, and moments of happiness. And so I think that's number one. Number two is I think there's, we really need to support the mental health and economic recovery here of individuals. People are struggling. They're struggling in very real, real, real ways. Look at our youth. Our youth have some of the highest rates of mental health struggles right now. I'll just send me the statistics are just like uh, so sobering, so sobering right now, more than, you know, 40% of youth in this country, they say they have persistent feelings of hopelessness or sadness more than 40%. Imagine a high school semi of a thousand students and 400 of them in that high school are reporting persistent, persistent sadness and, and hopelessness. Now imagine 200 of those students reporting that they have created a suicide plan. Wow. 200. Now imagine a hundred of those students acted on that plan and attempted to take their own life. 
out of that high school. That's today. That's the United States today. So when you ask where we need to go, that's where we need to go. We need to heal. We need to heal. We need to overcome the mental health struggles. We need to support them. We need to normalize them. We need to destigmatize them. We need to have the conversations. We need to build up the workforce. We need to give access to that workforce and that expertise and, and mental health um, services, counseling. We need to embed counselors in schools, right? There's so much to do. And there could be a whole conversation on just how to tackle that alone. But I think bringing attention to the struggles, the various struggles, to the mental health, just as this country has done with physical health for so, so, so long is so important, and particularly with their youth, because they're at the beginning of their lives. That that individual in high school, that could be, you know, your brother, that could be your son, that could be your friend, that could be your neighbor's son, that could be your cousin, right? That could be, that could be any, any one of us know someone who that could be in that high school. And, and God forbid, you know, um, their life is lost. Uh, because of a mental health struggle. So I think that's really when I when I think about where we move forward, I think that's where we really need to focus uh, as a nation on. I love that you're sharing numbers. And I strongly believe we need to start listening to these numbers because they're real. And that's really how we can move forward. So I love that answer. And it's really exciting to hear where we are, because the youth is our future. And if you don't address them proactively, then the future is pretty dim. No, and I think the other point is, Dr. Nakasi, is that given the COVID, I feel like we need a nationwide strategy on addressing capacity, optimizing triage process, how do we approach elective treatments? Because all these things took a backseat when we had to face the pandemic. What do you believe we need to be implementing as a nationwide strategy to address all of this? And it's a big question, but high level answers. Yeah, definitely, Simi. That's it's such an important question. And I think you're so right. I would, What I would say, if I had to say really the most important thing we need to think about moving forward in COVID-19 strategies, we need to think about it just like we've thought about other life impacting disasters, environmental challenges, societal challenges that face the human species and human civilizations and all of us and society, right? So I'll give a very clear example. Think about fires. There's not a single town in America that isn't within reasonable distance typically of a fire station because we know fires happen. They happen sometimes within our homes. They happen sometimes accidentally. They sometimes happen intentionally. They sometimes happen environmentally, right? With no control or, or human kind of agency in that environmental disaster happening. And particularly now, we're seeing more and more wildfires, for example, right? And so what have we done as a society with that, Simi? We've created fire stations so that all 3,400 or so counties across the entire United States can have access to, to fire station uh, uh, personnel, right? We have firefighters, so we've resourced the workforce and we create firefighters. We've created fire hydrants, so we have tools across streets and neighborhoods and, and, and communities and counties where there's access to, to the antidote, the, the water that needs to, to put out the fires. So we have the fire stations, we have the firefighters, we have the fire hydrants, we have fire alarms within homes, we have sprinklers within homes, right? We've created this entire infrastructure because fires can happen anytime, any moment, and they're destructive, both to property and to people. We, we lose people every year still to fires, right? So that's how I think about, when I think about strategy for COVID-19, if I have to emphasize one real critical pillar that's the foundation of strategy it's investing 
in the people and the tools and the resources needed to create a similar infrastructure for pandemics. Fires are environmental disasters, pandemics are biologic disasters, right? It's the equivalent. We have to be prepared for that. And I think, unfortunately, it was so sad, right? The reality of this pandemic is it exposed how far behind we still are in that preparedness. So that's what I would say when we're looking at the next 10, 20, 30 years of preparedness is investing in that infrastructure so there's, there's strong public health departments. They have strong communication mechanisms to community-based organizations. We have strong personnel from clinicians and nurses and public health workers and, and community health workers. We have good monitoring and surveillance systems. So we're detecting things ahead of time, like those fire alarms that detect smoke before the fire, right? It's really analogous to how we've set this country up to deal with environmental challenges in many ways. We need to prepare for that moving forward as a strategy for this country. I love this answer, mostly also because we have a lot to learn from other industries. And just with the fire alarm example, it shows us how not proactive we are within the healthcare and public health industry. And that's a beautiful example. So Dr. Nakasi, apart from the COVID-19, a lot of people, as you've addressed a little bit, is loneliness, isolation. Do you believe that is the next silent pandemic? I very much believe that we need to think seriously about the loneliness and social isolation challenges of this country. I think if I think about the forefront of the future, I think it's one, having a strong COVID-19 strategy that we just talked about for the future one, two, um, and this is these are all top priorities, not in, in any particular order, but it's like sound COVID-19 strategy, the mental health crisis, particularly amongst our youth, uh, too. And then the challenge of the social isolation of millennials. We we know from data, this is data from Morning Consult and Cigna that was uh, published this year in 2022, that nearly six in 10, six in 10 U.S. adults are lonely. I mean, that's 60% of the country. That's more than the number of people with diabetes, with the number of people with hypertension, the number of people with cancer, the number of people with heart disease. That's more than all of that. Um, the number of people uh, with loneliness. And we know loneliness is associated with mental health and physical health challenges. Uh, In fact, one study uh, published uh, showed that loneliness and social isolation are associated with almost a 30% decrease in life expectancy. 30% decrease in your survival, uh, your life expectancy for those uh, expressing loneliness or socially isolated. So I, I completely agree. There's so many important facets that tie in our mental health, emotional health, physical health to loneliness and social isolation. And so I think the way forward, the hopeful aspect is it costs nothing to solve that problem. It costs nothing. And by that, I mean, the antidote is social connection. All that requires is our attention and presence amongst each other, our attention and presence to re connect, right? That's, that's what it costs is that attention simply. But beyond that, there's no like monetary, fiscal kind of cost consideration of like, we need it to, to really like recalibrate the problem. We just have to look amongst ourselves. We have to look amongst ourselves simply in a way and reconnect with each other and take that time and attention. But, and, and I will say on that, there are, of course, important system level changes, to give people the chance to reconnect and to give people the time. 
And that has costs, right? Creating the system, right? We need, if people are struggling, like my patients, to juggle two or three jobs and, you know, childcare, and they're, you know, trying to put food on the table, it's a lot harder for them to participate in service organizations or to catch up with a friend or take the time for themselves to reconnect with loved ones and can feel more isolating. And so there are system level major changes we need to take, but I think it can all start individually by just um, being more present with one another, uh, which is something all of us can start doing even tomorrow, whether it's that extra phone call to mom. It's it's picking up the phone call from a friend instead of letting it go to voicemail. It's returning the text message. It's grabbing instead of eating alone at lunch. It's grabbing, you know, lunch with a colleague if we're able to. Um, it's the small things, the small actions like that, that, that really uh, cost us very minimal and give us such a rewarding social connection with each other. So I think that's, that's really the way forward. And it's such an important, important uh, challenge for us to tackle because of all the ramifications um, that come out of loneliness and social isolation. So this brings me to my last question, Dr. Nakasi, is if you have to share three takeaways for the future of health, what would they be? The main takeaways, you know, treating public health as an indispensable asset of our lives. You know, that's that's the that's the number one takeaway is just we have treating public health as an indispensable, invaluable aspect of our life. And I think, you know, we shared about that with the fire station analogy in many ways. I think if we can get to that framework, that mindset as a country, we will be so much better off. Our and in particular, our underserved communities will be better off. So I mean, we can close that gap. No one in this country should be born today and be expected to live 10 years less of life than someone across town. No one in this country deserves that fate because of their zip code. No one. And I think that if we look at the most upstream root causes, there are many. There are many from from poverty, from education access, economic opportunity access. But one area, one area myself and others in public health can invest in and our communities can invest in is in that public health, in in those resources, the distribution of resources, uh, to communities that need us most. And so that's that's really my main takeaway is um, let's keep the faith. I think um, we've all been through a lot, but I think we've also seen the, the ability of our communities to be resilient. And that's what gives me hope. You know, I, my patients, my patients, though I hear many of their stories and struggles to me, they also give me hope and they give me purpose to why things can get better. And so I, I'm very hopeful. I think if we crystallize that, that invaluable asset of public health, we can save so many more lives and we can save them within communities that really need um, us to step up for them. Dr. Nakasi, thank you so much for joining me today. It was such a pleasure to have you on Health Forward. Thank you, Simi. It was really a pleasure to have the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This is Health Forward Podcast, and I'm your host, Smriti Kirbanam.